the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Why are we revisiting the events of Palm Sunday at the start of the Advent season? The prophet Zechariah, whose words are quoted in the Gospel lesson, gives us the answer. Quote, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. This daughter of Zion was a poetic name in the prophetic writings for the city of Jerusalem, which sat at the feet of Mount Zion, an idealized picture of the temple at the high place of Jerusalem. In the prophetic literature, Zion symbolizes the final fulfillment of God's promise to visit and correct the worship of his people, and so bring them justice and peace in the land. However, it is not clear that the temple at Jerusalem often, or perhaps even ever, aligned with the image of Zion. Too often, the temple became a symbol of the people's divided heart and tendency to compromise with the idols of neighboring peoples. As the temple at the heart of Jerusalem went, so did the justice of the city. It is for this reason that as the right worship of God at the temple declined, so the city found itself breaking the commandments and incurring the judgment that followed. From the prophet Isaiah, we hear, quote, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation, Whoever believes will not act hastily. Also, I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plummet. In the writings of Isaiah, that stone turns out to be a king who enters into Zion to be its secure foundation, to safeguard its life and renew the whole land from there. The measuring line image is that of a covenant people who walk in the Lord's ways, who don't deviate to the right or to the left, and who take every direction from the word of that king. Taken together, they are the image of a new temple and of a new temple people, fitted together without any of the corrupting effects of idolatry or lawlessness. The restoration of Zion was not, however, only for the Israelites but for the sake of all peoples. As Zion was the heart of faithful Jerusalem, so Jerusalem was supposed to become a point of unity where all peoples could come seeking to worship the true God. As Isaiah reveals in another image, quote, I will bring them to my holy mountain. I will make them happy in the temple where people pray to me. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my temple will be known as a temple where all nations may pray. Jerusalem's vocation was not insular, but evangelistic. It existed to be a place that was frequently visited, to be a place of hospitality for the pilgrim. Its restoration would again restore the place in its relationship to the rest of the world, 
would give a place for all nations to come and pray. And this, as it began to order all people around the worship of the true God, would restore the world itself to its proper place in God's whole creation. St. Matthew is clear that Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem is the fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy and, by extension, Isaiah's. But the city was not ready, or at least not ready for the actual way that Christ came to save it. Since the time of Zechariah, the ideal of a restored Zion slowly shifted from a renewal of worship to a political liberation from a foreign occupation. The presumption among the the scribes and Pharisees at the time of Christ, these religious watchdogs of Jerusalem, was that their religion was pure. And so all that was needed was to oust the invaders so that the chosen people could have their land back again and enjoy it. As Jesus drew near to the city, the city was in an uproar because the manner of his coming tapped into a centuries-old sense of expectation. But an expectation for what? It surprised everyone when Jesus proceeded straight through the city, leaving Pontius Pilate and his Roman soldiers undisturbed, and instead went straight to the temple to judge it. Our Lord's judgment is that the temple was meant to be a house of prayer for the Israelites and for all the nations, but had become a den of robbers. The practices of selling animals for sacrifice and exchanging the currency of foreigners was not in themselves, were not in themselves a problem. Usury, taking advantage of the foreigner, was already a grave enough sin. But the deepest corruption was that they had turned the place meant for the visitor to worship into a place to cheat them. It was the antithesis of the vocation of the place and the people, an abdication of their role in the whole creation. The Lord's judgment showed Jerusalem that they had failed the standard of right worship. There was a deeper sickness there than the one the people wanted Christ to heal for them. They were not ready to be delivered in the way that the Lord came to deliver them. They rejected it, and by the end of that same week, they would crucify their own Messiah and cement rejection as the permanent character of that place. In the midst of all of this, though, a new temple was about to be raised. Even as he pronounced the end of the temple at Jerusalem, Jesus reveals the inauguration of a new temple in his body. As he had said to the Pharisees previously, destroy this temple, pointing to himself, and in three days I will raise it again. That temple in him is now the place of right worship of orthodoxy, into which would be fitted the apostles and all who would believe because of the word they preached to the ends of the earth, living stones of the new eternal temple. Jesus assumes and fulfills Israel's vocation in himself 
inaugurating a new covenant people in his blood to declare the redemption that awaits all the nations and the whole creation. The salvation that will make all things new began in the middle of time with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we, who now live in the remembrance of that mighty coming to judge and to save, now anticipate his coming again in glory to do as he did that day in Jerusalem for the temple, but for all things in the creation. As Christians, we are always living in Christ, even as we are at the same time pilgrims in the time and in the events of this world. Ultimately, the whole world's history will continue to repeat that tragic rejection of the Messiah on Good Friday. The Christian bears witness to the end of that world because the Christian has already seen the end of the world in the gospel. Meanwhile, the Christian lives always in the everlasting now of the new creation in Christ. As St. Paul says to the Corinthians, quote, Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And as he says in our epistle to the Romans this morning, quote, Now it is high time to wake up out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we first believed. We begin Advent in this way to remember that our Lord comes desiring the salvation of all, but also that his salvation calls us all to repent of our sins, to be healed of our corruption, to be returned to the right worship in a life of prayer, and thus to be reunited with God. Like the citizens of Jerusalem, we all have our own projects, causes, and petitions that we want him to come and fix. Too often, we want him to fix just this one thing and to leave the rest of our life alone. But if, like them, we do not follow our Lord back into our own hearts and back into a living communion of prayer with him, we will be disappointed in the salvation that he actually wants to bring us. And in that disappointment, we will be tempted to reject him. But if we follow Jesus as Christians, we'll go with him where he actually comes to heal us. We will confront with him and through him our true frailties, shames, and compromises of the heart. We will become a living member again in the new temple of his glorious body, the church. We will worship in deed and in truth. And then we will go out to overcome with him all that is not yet well, in justice and in the mercy and humility that only he can make for us. As we enter Advent then, let us put aside what we may have thought this season should be about. And let us ask the Lord what he wants for our Lord wants in this season more and better for us than, we, than whatever we had planned for it. Let us earnestly pray to put off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light, 
remembering that even in the growing darkness of the world, we are witnesses to the new day of the kingdom that has already dawned and is only growing in its light. For, as we read in the final chapter of Revelation, now the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light, and the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and their honor into it. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen.